This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. The, um, now, we're the Living Standards people, so we're going to talk about living standards, but we're mainly going to do that today because it has begun. Is the, now, that's not my kids are back at school today, so that has begun logistics hell, wishing you made different lifestyle choices. But that isn't what's begun for you. What has begun is the long general election campaign. Q size, Q, oh my God, it's actually going to go on for more than a year. Yes, it is. The, um, or at least, yes, it is based on statistical analysis of previous elections, which always go long if, people are, if the government of the day is behind. So we've got a long campaign going. We're expecting election in the, in the autumn of 2024. And the question is, what is going to be the backdrop to that election? Because right now, yes, there's like everyone's enjoying the thick of it memes about concrete, unless their kids are out of that school, in which case they are not enjoying the memes, or if they're the government. They're, um, or they're focused on like, is this the transformational reshuffle for the shadow uh, cabinet that will determine the result of the election? In brackets, no, no reshuffle has ever done that. They're, what actually matters in elections is the living standards of the voters who are voting in those elections. Sometimes what matters is the long-term living standards for them over the five years. Sometimes it's what's going on right now. So I'll give you two examples. You all know the famous Ronald Reagan examples and you know about all the American examples because everybody always focuses on American politics. But in Britain, in recent history, two stand out for me. One is um, in 2015, when after a pretty tough economic parliament, the year run-in to the 2015 general election was actually the last like boom, or mini-boom as we call it, for household living standards. Energy prices came down really fast in that year. Real wages actually grew pretty decently in the run-up to the 2015 uh, general election. And I'm not saying that's the reason, but it definitely contributed to the surprisingly strong result for David Cameron. Remember, a coalition government turning into a Tory majority government when everybody had spent the entire election campaign talking about a SNP Labour coalition. Then, because people are morons in terms of what they actually focus on, and no one had been to the southwest, right? So, first thing, 2015 election, living standards mattered. Next one, the 2017 election, when Theresa May was a genius, went on a walking holiday, famously, decided to call an election exactly as everyone's wages started falling in real terms. And, you know, you haven't got to be a genius to know that governments don't tend to get rewarded when they call elections, which is why they don't do it, by the way. In general, governments just don't call elections when wages are falling. She's a genius. She did. Again, not the reason she got a worse result than expected, but definitely on the list of what's going on. So this stuff does matter. So the question is, Okay, we'll, we'll talk about the concrete later, I promise a little bit, but what do we think, what's our best bet is likely to be the living standards backdrop to an election that we're expecting at the back end? You know, not 100%, but 80% in the back end of 2024. So we've got a report out today doing that. That's what you're about to get a summary of from Adam Corlett, who's a principal economist here at the foundation. And then we've got a great panel. You're going to get Maureen Khan, economics editor at The Times, take on what on earth this actually means and whether it's any of it's going to happen. Because remember, there's lots of uncertainty here as well. And we'll try to get into that. Like, which of these different things that are going to drive the projections we're going to show you could change in a better or a worse direction, because it's always uncertain. And then you're going to hear from uh, Kelly Beaver, MBE, it tells me here. Congratulations again. That's quite a while back. Uh, who's the chief executive of Ipsos uh, and keeps her finger closely on the pulse of what on earth is going on with the British public. So she can tell us what on earth is going to happen when this happens to the British public. Ready? Yeah. 
And you can all ask questions as always. It's hashtag living standards on Slido. They, um, and we'll do some polls actually on those things I mentioned, which is like which of these things really matters and what could go better. Because it's important to keep some hope in life. That's what Richard Sunak tells the number 10 team every day. And I would if I was him too. So, Adam, what's in your report? Come on, keep it perky. Uh, I'll, I'll try. Thanks, Torsten. Um, so, yeah, to start off with some perky news, uh, there are some, uh, some good indicators at the moment um, for the government. So inflation is obviously coming down rapidly, and that's set to continue. We had 11% uh, inflation uh, at one point last year. That's already down to 7%, um, and those falls are likely to continue. There might be blips from month to month, but it's very likely that the, the trend is down. Uh, the Prime Minister, of course, has his target of halving inflation by the end of this year, and the latest Bank of England forecast suggests that he will meet that target, but it's uh, not, not a, a done deal yet. Uh, and by the time of a possible election at the end of 2024, the bank think was, thinks there's about a 50-50 chance that inflation might actually be below 3%. Um, alongside falling inflation, real pay is now rising. Uh, real pay took a big hit in 2022 due to that high inflation um, and it might take uh, quite a while to get back to where we were in 2021. Um, but things are moving in the right direction. The low point for real pay is behind us uh, and it's certainly very welcome to see real pay growing again. Uh, unfortunately, there are still lots of pressures moving in the other direction. Um, so bank rate is likely to peak relatively soon, but as you know, that will take a while to fully feed through to um, households with mortgages due to uh, fixed rate deals. Um, so in terms of uh, the overall change in um, payments for mortgages, we think we're about halfway through now, um, halfway through the rise, uh, and by the time of a Q4 2024 election, um, we're probably up to about 90%, so most of the rest of the rise will happen over the next year. Um, alongside rising mortgage costs, rents are also rising. Um, we know that uh, average new rents rose by about a quarter between 2021 and 2023. Uh, that's also taking time to, to feed through to um, uh, all renters. Um, also less perky is the outlook for unemployment. Um, the bank thinks um, there will be increases over the next few years as uh, bank rate um, takes effect basically um, and there have been forecasts in the past for rising unemployment that have been too pessimistic um, but the actual latest data on unemployment is coming up a bit higher than the bank uh, forecast as recently as August. Um, policy is also having an impact on the living standards outlook so uh, on tax policy the freezing of tax thresholds until 2028 um, it's particularly important, so things like the personal allowance. That means that as people's salaries are going up in cash terms, average tax rates are actually um, going up due to those frozen thresholds. Um, and so the blue line here is the, the line I showed earlier for pre-tax pay um, starting to recover, but the red line is post-tax pay, and you can see that that rises much more slowly. Um, so the growth over the Parliament as a whole in post-tax pay might actually be fairly uh, minimal. Um, there's also a lot going on on benefits and temporary support. So we've had lots of schemes to help 
um, lower income households especially, like the cost of living payments, uh, which are, are taking place uh, this year. Um, you don't need to take in everything on this complicated chart. These temporary payments are, have been a big deal for um, a large number of households, but they're set to end in 2024. Um, on the other hand, benefits are due to rise in line with inflation next April. That might mean a 7% rise for working age benefits. Um, but when you take those two changes together, um, we reckon that uh, the total amount of support uh, is actually going to drop next year in real terms. Um, for a, a single out-of-work person, that could be a 13% drop in real terms um, due to the, the scale of uh, payments this year. Um, so, yeah, quite significant and not what you might expect from uh, the headline benefit uprating number. Uh, so, there's a lot going on there. What does it all mean when you take it together and model what's going to happen to disposable incomes overall? Uh, we look at the typical non-pensioners' uh, real income, and you can see there was a big drop in 2022, but we forecast that uh, since then, uh, we're probably in the middle of a, a three-year stagnation, so no growth in 2023, also zero growth in the election year of 2024, and in the first year of the, the next parliament. Um, overall, looking at the parliament from 2019 to 2024, um, this is very likely going to be the, the worst parliament on record on this measure, with uh, incomes falling by 4%. Um, that's just at the median in the middle of the distribution. We can now broaden that out and look at what's happening to lower income households and higher income households. Um, if you've not seen these charts before, the red bars are showing uh, changes in income from year to year for lower income households. The blue bars are for higher income households uh, and with everything in between. So you can see, for example, in 2022, uh, there was a fall in inequality with higher income households seeing the biggest falls in real income, whereas proportionally lower income households were relatively protected due to those um, uh, temporary um, payments. Um, in 2023, inc incomes have been more stagnant for everyone, but then looking ahead to uh, the election year, uh, we actually find that lower income households are going to be worse off next year than this year, with a 1% fall in uh, the average income of the bottom half next year in real terms. Uh, whereas there's slightly better news uh, for the top half of the income distribution with real incomes growing. Um, and even within that, there are particular groups of winners and losers, so uh, it won't surprise anyone to learn that uh, households with mortgages are facing the, um, the biggest hit. Um, we reckon a 7% fall in the typical real income, income of mortgages between 2021 and 2024. Um, on the other hand, Outright owners um, are not facing the same pressures. Uh, their incomes are probably growing at the moment um, to reach record highs. Uh, and renters are somewhere in between with um, fairly stagnant incomes. Um, but it's not all bad news. Uh, as well as uh, higher bank rate putting pressure on mortgages, uh, it also means higher savings income. So one of the things we look at in this paper um, are the prospects for savings interest. We reckon there'll be £90 billion of savings income in 2024-25, and that's up from just £5 billion in 2021, 
Uh, so it's a huge change from a, a low interest world that we've grown used to. Um, on average, that works out at about £3,000 per household, so, so really chunky sums. But of course, that's not evenly distributed across everyone. Uh, the distribution of savings is very unequal, so about 10% of households who have the most savings uh, actually account for about two-thirds of that whole total. Uh, they'll gain about £20,000 each in savings income on average. Um, whereas about ha ha lots of households obviously have very little in the way of savings, uh, half households will get 2% of that total, uh, so about £100 each on average. Um, and there's a big age gradient as well as you might expect with older households having more savings. Um, uh, sort of younger pensioners will average about six times as much as under 35s in terms of uh, savings income. And there'll be a slight income gradient to all of this as well, um, with higher income households gaining a bit more than lower income ones proportionally, uh, although the difference is not as uh, stark as uh, you might imagine. Uh, so just to wrap up before discussion, uh, yeah, there is some good news in the year ahead, um, particularly on inflation and real pay. Um, but I think it's fair to say the cost of living crisis is not over, given that incomes are set to fall further for lower income households. Um, and I should stress that all of our forecasts assume that benefits do go up in line with inflation next April, um, whereas the government might be tempted uh, to tinker with that. Um, and as I said, the, the report uh, dwells quite a bit on the um, in increase in savings interest, which is quite a big change, uh, and that has quite a large impact um, on the living standards outlook in the, the short term. Um, obviously, it's not an ideal backdrop for an, incum an incumbent government, um, but uh, as ever, the forecast is, is not set in stone, um, so there, there is still, still time for, for luck and or policy to, to change it somewhat. Great, thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. Very good. The, um, so hopefully lots of food for thought, and we'll obviously go back through lots of those issues because we've cantered through a lot of territory there. What do you reckon? So I think, so, you know, my job and to some degree the job of the spin doctors is to sort of construct narratives around the economy. And for two years, just a bit over, the narrative has been there's a cost of living crisis. And then you saw a sort of tipping point a few weeks ago, just before the summer, which is at the start of the summer, that wages had finally outstripped the rate of inflation. And this was a sort of moment where uh, economic journalists and analysts were, you know, we, we understood what the forecasts were and we thought actually yeah, July will be the month. And it was the month. And I think in a sense that we have started shifting towards uh, a slightly different narrative that the cost of living crisis is slowly ending. And I think for lots of reasons that we've just heard about, that's a very difficult narrative to sort of sustain and make people sort of believe it on a level that's just beyond the ONS said, well, is that, is that not enough? enough? Yeah, it, is it, is it, I think the question is, is it enough? And I think the other element that I'm interested in is the narratives about who really suffers uh, in the economy, in an economy with very high interest rates. And you will have noticed, or anyone who reads newspapers like the Times, the Telegraph, the Daily Mail to some degree, that mortgage holders get a disproportionate amount of attention when it comes to thinking about the, the losers in this. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite interested in maybe just pointing out a couple of things about the huge sort of structural changes we've had in the UK's housing market, which means that compared to almost any other historical period where you would have had a 
what is it, 510 basis points, 5.1 percentage point increase in interest rates in about 18 or 19 months, that actually most people just haven't really felt it. And that's a lot of that is to do with the structure of the mortgage market. So I think, you know, maybe what I'm trying to say is that maybe people it, like myself and others should be spending far less time just thinking solely about the impact on mortgage holders because far fewer people own homes in the UK far more people have fixed rate mortgages which is the big driver and change for the way monetary policy works so I think in at the beginning of the century 2001 uh, 80% of all people who had a mortgage were on a variable rate mortgage and that is basically between one to two years which means they would feel any change in borrowing costs pretty immediately within 12 months they would know about it they'd have to change their behaviors in response now I think the rate of variable uh, the, the number of the proportion of variable rate, variable rate mortgages is less than 10% uh, that's the biggest change in any EU country over that time the massive drop in people having variable rate mortgages and people who are on fixed rate mortgages majority skewed towards a kind of five-year average so we already know that i think the bank puts it about a third now we think it's around a half of the impact has been felt and there was also another narrative that was constructed which is that the bank has sort of got away with everything because this wall of pain which is remortgaging is going to happen in the second half of 2023 and in the beginning of 2024 where over a million people are going to have to get new uh, refix but even that is proving to be more of a slow puncture rather than that wall of pain. So actually what we're seeing is that lots of people, yes, they are going to have to refix, but maybe due to other circumstances, they are going to be able to absorb a lot of that financial pain. And what we're seeing in the economy, I think, remarkably, is that a lot of people are just not making major spending decisions that change the way that they would have behaved otherwise. We're not really cutting back on the services, the things we can access during the pandemic. There's still huge pent up demand for this. We're happy to pay the 13% inflation we're seeing in restaurants and hotels. This stuff is, you know, we're having a boom and it's a bit, you know, a bit of the kind of taxi driver analogy, but if you look out the window anywhere in central London, you'd be very hard pressed to find or think of this as a, as a country where people are feeling pain in a in a sense where they're having to cut back on the things that they enjoy with their disposable income so i think the mortgage element is going to get a lot of attention and i think it is a problem for the government because they can't just say well actually there's far far fewer people who have a mortgage so why are we hyper fixating on you because ultimately they think that a lot of those people um will read about themselves in the newspapers and, and, and think that they are the ones who are losing but what i really enjoyed is that there was attention that you guys paid to the idea of the outright owners who are a growing part of the population now over a third of people who have homes just own their home outright these are the people who had a pretty good pandemic these are the people who saved up a lot of money during the pandemic they thought they, they bought their house outright they probably even left the labor market because they were doing so well maybe even chose early retirement and this is a more significant part of the population which are going to be not only insulated from the, the cost of living pressures that we're saying but actually are going to be winners in other senses and maybe just finally the other part of the population that we don't really speak about when we construct the narratives is the savers and to understand that the savers are not just richer old people but are generally people who skew on the older end of the on the demographic scale and i think it's really interesting that you found that there isn't a massive sort of um skew in the income distribution so people who have lots of savings are not necessarily just people who are rich and therefore they have savings there are a lot of people on lower incomes who for you know reasons of 
financial prudence build up savings and they're not going to get the bigger bump in in what we know that interest rates will you know in their remuneration but they will see some degree of benefits the uk has had a relatively sizable decline in the ratio of household household debt to assets that's something we saw since the financial crisis um, it will mean that we have despite the narrative around our banking system is not actually passing on a lot of the benefits of what they're seeing through high interest rates, people will be able to accrue savings. And then just finally, this is not just a problem for the government, it's also a problem for monetary policy. I think given that we think the cost of living crisis is easing, there's a natural expectation that in the run-up to a general election, the Bank of England should cut interest rates. And the problem they're having now is that they actually want to tell us that they will keep interest rates restrictive or uncomfortably high for a long time and it, I think they're going to find it really difficult to tell people why they're doing that. If in the run-up to a general election this time next summer we have a series of Bank of England decisions where they do nothing, it's going to be seen as they're actively trying to harm one, the government. I mean that will be a narrative that will be around, I'm pretty sure, the government's electoral chances. Why do they feel the need to have interest rates above 4% when the economy is maybe tipping into a recession, where people have been living with high borrowing costs for then it will come up to nearly two and a half years? So I think there'll be a natural pressure for them to ease. And we're already seeing that they're trying to put a lot of sort of test balloons out to say, actually, no, the, the sort of the mindset we're in is the higher for longer mindset. And that's fine for people like me to parrot write about higher for longer all the time. What does higher for longer mean for asset prices? What does higher for longer mean for financial markets? But I think the higher for longer narrative for the public in public discourse is going to be quite a difficult one to sell. And it just seems a bit cruel. And we've and the bank's been playing villain a villainous kind of role in our public sort of economic policy debate for a long time, and I'm interested to see whether they can withstand. I think a lot of the pressure that they are going to be coming under to give a little bit of a pre-electoral present, just for people people generally, but also for the government. So that's why I'll stop. Great, thank you very much indeed. There's loads of things there. The, um Okay, we should definitely try to come back to some of that, especially the way you ended on not just what does it mean for politics, but what does it mean for monetary uh, policy. Kelly, the public, are they really perky? They're not really perky, so I'm surprised actually from some of the comments about okay. people not feeling it and still uh, spending. So I, I will talk a little bit. Obviously, my role is to listen and interpret what the public think, feel and do. Um, and they have been, if you look back over the last 18 months, feeling like they're playing whack-a-mole with cost rising at all different points in their lives. So whether it was the energy or household, motoring, food prices, and now uh, those, those kind of costs around mortgages and rental rises as well, which are starting to feed through in less of an acute, more of a chronic way, it's just taking, taking longer to permeate through their overall spending and how they're feeling. But it, it has, does have a big impact on how the public feel day to day, how they feel about the economy as a whole. You know, six and 10 don't think the inflation is gonna come down and it's gonna take over 12 months for that to happen. It matters in how they feel about their own personal uh, expenditure in their finances. Three in 10 of you savings to help cover some of the cost of living expenses where they had it. And one in four say that they're struggling really day to day financially, either finding it very difficult to get by or difficult to get by. And it impacts on how they feel about the country and the government. They do, the Bank of England's getting a lot of flag for the interest rates. They are definitely top in terms of who the public blame. The government are up there and three and four don't believe the government have done a good job of handling the cost of living crisis. But one of my, one of the most telling stats that I've pulled out for today actually is one where we've got data back in 1998 and we've got data today and you ask people whether the country is becoming a better place to live, a worse place to live or whether it's staying the same. 
1998, 24% said that they felt it was becoming a better place to live, 40% saying it was getting worse. Today it's 6% who say it's getting better and 76% who say it's getting worse. So the public are very sombre. Well, what happens if some of these things transpire and inflation does come down and some of the big signals in the economy that they look to in the press narrative starts becoming more positive but low to middle income households don't really see it translate for them in their disposable income and I think what that does in an electoral run-up it changes the framing of the narrative it changes the campaigning narratives and it changes what the voters care about most definitely and just if you think at a very high level, what will happen from some of the discussions that Adams put forward? Well, the older population who are more likely to be homeowners, also more likely to vote Conservatives, that just doubles down their vote uh, because you are seeing improvements in their over overall living standards. So that's quite a nice win. Rishi Sunak will come out and say he has managed to do what he said he was going to do around inflation. His hope will become uh, it's something very tangible. There'll be messages around that. But also the, the drive in the inequality gap, which would definitely be generated as a result of some of the things that we've seen, will become a very solid Labour narrative. And with Angela Rayner now in the levelling up department, and that is an area where Labour do particularly well anyway, that could become one of the forefront areas for their campaign. Red Wall not getting any particular benefit, and again, from a Labour perspective, they will see an, an easier place for them to gain votes. And on mortgages, when we look at how people vote, if they own their own homes, if they've got a mortgage or if they're in the rented sector, the gap, so mortgages and rented sector are currently very uh, much more likely to vote Labour, but the gap is different. So the gap between favouring uh, Labour and Conservatives, if it's 17 net favourable to Labour for mortgages and it's 27 for people who rent. So actually, if you're going to pick a place to fight and where you think you could close that gap and where there's going to be pain felt, you might start making, that might be a swing constituency that you really wanted to focus on. So you might see that coming through. Um, and then two final points if I can. Sorry, Torsten. Um, yeah. If concern about the economy starts to drop, so we have the Issues Index, which looks at what people care about uh, most, what they're most concerned about, and it's the economy, it's inflation. But if that starts to dissipate and ease a little bit, and we have seen it start to be, it's still definitely up there, but you're starting to see it soften a little bit. The things that are right beneath the surface are public services, concern about public services, about the NHS, about schools, about housing. Those concerns start to become more dominant in the public psyche and move up in their overall levels of priority. Government is poning badly on all delivery areas at the minute, apart from how they tackle war in Ukraine. So if we move into the realm of public services, again, that is a challenging environment for the Conservative government. And then strip away your paper. What? Right, strip away your paper, put it to one side, forget about all the noise, because this is noise and you're going to see this thing fluctuate. Some of it may transpire, some of it may not. When we ask the public a most critical question, are you ready for change? Do you want change? Whether they think Conservatives have done a good or a bad job, or whether they think Labour would do a good, bad job, two thirds of the population believe we should have change at the next election. That is quite a critical indicator, and we find that as a critical indicator. The public want change. And when you look at the comparisons on how people feel between Conservatives and Labour, it's not, when you look at all the rankings, it's not that they are deeply in love with Labour, per se, and you can see this through lots of the electoral punditry. Um, they, they are almost neutral on when you ask them, do you think Conservatives are doing a good job? Do you think Labour would do a good job? They trust Labour more. 
then they trust the Conservatives. But they're quite neutral on whether they think they would do a good or bad job on things like taxation and the economy. They trust them more but not necessarily. And there's a lot in the middle who are really undecided. So there's a big job for any any of the parties to do in the run-up to the election on the key issues that matter to the general public. And I'll leave it there. Your quote that you started your paper with is fundamental. Do people feel better off four years than, than they were four years ago at the point of November 2024? What's the answer? I, I, not, I'm not at the minute. No, not, not so much. Minute. People is definitely the answer. Okay, thank you very much, Kelly. The, um, what would we all have done if Ronald Reagan hadn't said that? It would be really awkward. Someone else would have had to say something similar. Well, what, yeah, that is what we would do. <laughs> there, we would have blamed Orwell. There, right, okay, the, um, that's very good. Uh, right, okay, there's loads there. So I think what we should do is let's try to do a bit on the right now, where we kind of know what's happening so we don't have to get into the projections slash the like political rune reading. Then let's do what's coming, where there's a mixture of, okay, we're pretty confident that's coming. And, we don't. and then we can get into winners and losers. Could it all get better? I think we should definitely do. And then we'll do the politics. Like how is this actually going to play out? Which of these matters more than others, basically? Because there's a lot of different moving parts here, but they're not all equally in terms of their importance. Maybe give us a good reason why mortgages might not actually be as important as they were in the 1990s, for example. The, um, so on where we are, uh, let's just go one question first here. Someone's raised. Um, now, which is basically, look... It's basically the question that I think lots of people ask, and I get this when you, like, you're doing public events around the country, which is, inflation's falling back, isn't it happy days? Like, why isn't that there? And in some ways, the inflation falling back will matter for the narrative. You gave us one concrete example of that. It's, you know, real wages are now rising again, earlier than we expected. Like, we didn't expect real wages to be rising by June last year, this year, sorry, and they have started rising again. They, I don't want to overdo it. They're, they're rising slowly. They're rising from, like, uh, a significantly lower level than they were in at before this cost of living crisis kicked off. But they are um, rising. So the question is, why are incomes so weak in the coming years, even as inflation is falling back? And will we ever get back to some decent rising income? So, Adam, what, on that, on the substance, before we come on to, like, how do people feel about falling inflation but still high inflation, the... Um, why isn't there more good news, basically? How much work is the falling inflation falling doing in the forecasts? In terms of why there isn't more good news, um, our projections are based on the bank's outlook, and they fundamentally have a sort of weak economic outlook, and that, that feeds through into productivity and then real wages. So you could obviously have a, a much stronger outlook in terms of real pay, and that would that would improve the whole outlook. Um, how you get to that or whether we'll be lucky enough to, to see that is another question the, um, on, on this so mm. I, reg, I, I reg, people regularly say inflation's falling down so why aren't prices coming down mm. do you get that a lot in your focus groups so firstly the British public understand the word inflation better than they did two years ago so many shockingly, economic, economic shockingly. Term, I know it's amazing but a lot of economic terms are not necessarily well understood amongst yeah. uh, amongst the general okay. public and popular populace yeah. as a whole um, yes there will be a disconnect for people between some of the economic indicators and how they are seeing things transpire in their daily lives and there'll be a lot of pressure on places like supermarkets and others to demonstrate that they are what is happening as a result of the improvements that we're seeing in those headline numbers and it'll be the middle tier the people who provide 
goods and services to the economy, who will be under a lot of pressure from, I imagine, the press, the British public, etc., to translate that into something that hits people in their pockets. Yeah. So uh, we may see campaigns even from the, the likes of the Tesco's who generated things like Every Little Helps, uh, those kind of things coming yeah. back at great strength over the next uh, period of time for here's, competitiveness. Here's a corporate question. Why did the supermarkets think it was a good idea a few months ago to boast that food inflation had peaked when food prices were still rising? I watched them doing it and I was like, why are they, because their customers, so you, although you're telling me I'm being harsh on the British public and they understand that that means Not price, at all, okay, but more understand that it means prices are going up now. Is it a good idea for firms to tell their customers that the inflation has peaked when the actual price rises are still coming? Or am I being mean on the same supermarket? I think it's a challenging. The supermarkets have been really in a tricky place. If we look back to the economic crash, they were one of the big winners from the economic crash in terms of public views because people felt that they'd done a good job. Same, same throughout COVID, people felt that they'd done a good job and supported them. It was some of the campaigning around watching money in people's pockets, etc. And then this particular occasion, what, what was less well known by the British public because the supermarkets didn't talk about it is that they absorbed a lot of price rises mm -hmm. earlier on in the inflation crisis yeah. and they did not uh, they did not really campaign about what they were doing they just sort of did it quietly behind the scenes and now obviously some of these price rises are still yeah. you can still see them actively in your your shop yeah. and I think it was a tricky probably some better comms might have helped support them through this particular yeah. economic shock what do you think? Um, so inflation's coming down. How fast exactly? Who knows? Yep. Like the Chancellor yesterday announced the date for his autumn, autumn statement. statement. 22nd of uh, November. Whatever, November. Thank you. Diary. Everyone get in your diary, but mainly get the 23rd <laughs> in when you can come in here for the analysis of what he announced the day before. Quick plug. But it's on, it is on the 22nd because yes. the inflation data comes out the week before yes. and will show inflation falling because it's when the first, uh, when the off-gen price cap comes through into the falls in energy prices. The first four yeah. comes through into the October inflation data. So he'll be able to, de he's like confident, whatever the OBR's forecast give him, he'll at least have some good news that actually inflation will have fallen a bit. Where, yes. where are you on the, it's, how's it going right now? I think the question is, is correct. We are experiencing some degree of disinflation, the disinflation we knew that would happen, but why are earnings going to stay weak? Because because the bank's assumption is, is that once, uh, the inflation comes down, wages will eventually just catch up. We're probably right now at the peak of people's bargaining power, sort of around this summer. Um, particularly people in well-paid, uh, highly skilled jobs are able to demand inflation-busting pay rises because they can say to their employer, look, you're finding it really struggle to hire people. I'm very good at my job. Look at everything that's going on around me, the cosy Lizzie, as we're going to call it, as the kids call it. And I what want a 10%. What do the kids call they it? They call it the cosy Lizzie. Do they actually do that? No, they what actually the do. It's the TikTok. It's cost a, of living It's process. the TikTok. Oh, okay. It's the TikTok. Uh, I haven't, met, I haven't met these kids. Um, <laughs> what are many kids problems? Are, my people do research. Yeah, they don't no. understand different generations. I have, I have no idea what If you speak to any sort of Gen Z or young millennial, um, you know, they, they use Cosy Lizzie almost as a meme. I think it's also interesting in like the narrative construction because, because younger people understand that they are living through a period where the, there's a barrage of conversation about the cosy Lizzie. And to some degree, it's partly ironic, the way that they use it. And it's also sort of self-reinforcing thing, like, you know, we're going through a cosy Lizzie, which I imagine for my generation was going through the financial crisis, but it didn't have a, didn't have a meme. It didn't have a meme. Um, you know, <laughs> even Brothers then. and yeah, or Northern Rock didn't, didn't get a hashtag. But so, the cosy Lizzie. 
Um, has anyone in this room ever used the phrase? Really, There's some youth in it. Those really of you online, this room has got some youth in it. Not but I see a hand. One. Have any of you ever used the phrase Cosy Lizzie? Yes. I think this is a counterindication okay, for how cool it is, but the economist did write about the Cosy Lizzie in the they? budget column. Okay, oh my god, ago, the, so the country's in a much worse dead. state. I think, <laughs> I think Cosy Lizzie's dead. Whilst the economists use it, you yeah. know that it's, it's all over. Okay, fine, let's get back. Okay, you've anyway. educated us, now let's get back to anyway. the substance. All right. Um, so, so the labour market is basically just going to catch up and to some degree when the weakness in the labour market will hit and it is hitting. So unemployment is actually a bit too high right now than it should be. So we thought we were really just going to maybe breach 4%. We're already at 4.2%. A lot of that is actually people actually coming back to work. So the inactivity rate, this idea that there's so many people who are just sitting on the sidelines and choosing not to work, people are coming back to work and looking for work, which is also then perhaps a reflection of their financial situation. And that sort of uh, will bring up the unemployment rate as they look for jobs. Um, but the labour market will weaken. And I think one of the other ideas that we told ourselves was this was going to be a period of high interest rates and maybe a recession but we there was going to be lots of jobs hoarding going on so companies are, are sort of seeing the state of the world they understand that it's difficult to hire so they're going to keep on their workers rather than laying them off but they'll put them on reduced hours they'll offer them more flexible working rather than giving them the pay rise that they wanted maybe like we give them some sort of incentives around training so so businesses have been doing a lot to keep people and that also helps feed into this idea that maybe this is not going to be the kind of recession downturn classic you know you get laid off you lose your job then you're worried about your house your mortgage your children all the rest of it people are staying in work they're probably working less than they want they think they're being un they're underworked. They want more, you know. They want more hours, but it is. I think it's also helping s sustain the narrative that things are kind of okay-ish without being great. But I, I think on that question, it's important to also differentiate that the job. Not all workers are equal in this jobs market, and the people who are getting those massive inflation-busting pay rises are probably working in financial services, professional services firms. A lot of them in the southeast, uh, and they're doing really well because they've got a lot of bargaining power right now. Uh, and even when that dissipates, I probably think that they'll still be at the upper echelon. Okay. The, Why don't we use that? Let's use that as a like segue into like what's coming because we do touch on this in the report. But so. All of the external forecasts are for unemployment to tick up because the Bank of England is basically telling us it's got to get unemployment a bit higher because they're still worried about how high wages are currently running for the reasons you've just um, outlined. That is, and that is in these forecasts. The, the estimates of household incomes include a rise in unemployment in them of well, how much? How many people have you got? I think it's gone up by 200,000 already yeah. in the bank. I think we're going up to 4.6, 4.7% unemployment. Okay, so a few more hundred thousand in the numbers. So the, um, but that isn't doing, and so that would be on your list of headwinds to income growth over the next year. So a few more people are unemployed. The, um, but that isn't doing a lot of work just because the numbers, is that just, because that's really bad. It's really acute for those people, but it doesn't have a big effect on the aggregate. Is that basically? Yeah. That's basically right. The, um, and we haven't seen a big unemployment hit to incomes for a long time in Britain. So then, do we think on the politics? So that's like, for, in our world, doing the maths, it doesn't do a lot. Do we think if we do see a rise in unemployment, even though mo almost very few people experience it, uh, but it's in the narrative, do we think it matters politically, even if it doesn't matter in Adam's projections? I think uh, what will matter is the the narrative obviously matters it drives what people are concerned about the most so even if you don't have children are you concerned about the school the school concrete issues probably even if you haven't experienced unemployment are you concerned if unemployment looks like it's rising 
possibly. So it still does impact on people, but ultimately we're, we are partly selfish, partly altruistic and speak, the selfish for part, yourself. Well, Cosy Livy. Um, someone Lizzie, someone, someone Lizzie. online is coming in to say they know, it, they call it Cosy Lizzie too. They could. So it's not just, it's <laughs> not just. My people. It's like, it turns out you are out there, you youth. Yes, yeah, so uh, people are, people do think of when they are voting about how do they feel about the leader? Yeah. How do they feel about the party? This time the leader's neutral. The party conservative brand is very challenged and may struggle to come back in time. So the policies and what's in it for them will matter. Oh, and, on, and, and that will probably matter more um, because there's not a huge char charismatic leader sitting at the top of either party at the minute. So compared to 2019 when the Corbyn versus Boris was like, was like the leadership was, like the, was, the leadership was the thing factor, yeah, yes, with, this time through the Brexit lens. If things is. continue on as they are, it looks like it will be much more about a substance and an issues-based election. That's very and interesting. At the minute, the level of understanding of what Labour stand for is still relatively low, and so there's a lot of work for Labour to do as well in the yeah. next 12 months. What do the punters think Labour stands for? Um, they believe Keir Starmer certainly understands ordinary people's issues more than Rishi Sunak. They trust Labour more generally, but they're, they're, there's a, a big group in the middle who really just don't know. Don't. And that, that is an area to be shaped. Okay, yeah, very good, right. Then mortgages, and let's do housing costs. Let's do mortgages and rents together, mm. right? Because they're both going. So one thing again in the weeds of the modeling here. So mortgages, you'll have, we showed you the chart of the, we've had about half, a bit more than half now of the mortgage pain has come through the vast majority of the rest does come through by the end of this year, by the end of 2024, right? So if you do have an end of 2024 election, 90% odd of the mortgage pain has arrived right, by that point, which is why some, that's why some Tory MPs are like, why don't we go in the spring? Because then, uh, you know, 30% of them won't have had the remortgage experience. Now, that, that I think that this gets massively outweighed by the why would I leave Downing Street uh, question. But like, it's still, a, it's still a question to ask and some sensible people think it. Do we think on... On housing costs, as Marina has given us the good reason why it just happens to fewer people. So we've got like more concentrated pain. It's big for those affected, but it's more concentrated. Do we think that the fact that it takes some time to come through and the fact that it's concentrated means it's not as big a problem? Or do we think, even if you haven't yet been punched in the face, the fact that you know that you're going to be punched in the face in like six months' time means you're, you've like pre-anticipated the pain, not economically in your behaviour, but in your political views? What do we think? But how, how does it matter politically, this mortgage problem? So I think lived experience versus soon-to-be-lived experience. Yeah. There's not, not much between the people will vote based on whatever that, that policy package looks like, what a support package looks like, and I don't know who's going to have any money to provide support in, in that. The other thing is there's a lot of coverage on the mortgages, people who've got mortgages. Yeah. If you look at where we're seeing the most pain coming through in the data, and we're asking people about how they're being affected by their property costs and their... It is renters who are feeling it more. Certainly it's a timing issue, but they are feeling it much more. And you can see they're more worried and more likely to say they're struggling day to day. Let's do rent, but renters are always struggling more day to day. They are, the they are private and social, and the they are saying that they're seeing obviously the increase of the earlier for them. Yeah. Just well, so for renters, so for the renters, what we're seeing is, so you've got, you have got a big rise in rents, 25% since the start of 21, mm. on new rents. So people going out to get, has anyone in this room got a tenancy in the last year? A new one, I mean. The, um, Have you queued down the street? Trauma, the not property? trauma. Where are you on the trauma, trauma? It's probably not too bad, but it's... Me medium trauma. Okay, well, I mean, that's what we all aim for in life. <laughs> the, uh, okay, so we've got a medium trauma at the back, right. So, the, in general, people are at the uh, slightly above medium trauma if they happen to, if you've got a new tenancy in the last year. But 
And that's obviously where the news attention is focused, right? understandably, because they're showing the increases and they're the angry people. And actually lots of them are in London and so are the journalists, so that happens. The, um, actually lots of them are the young journalists who are trying to get a... Trying to get, uh, trying to get But you know, so they're going to write the story, aren't they? Um, but on the actual, it takes quite, actually it does just like mortgages, actually take quite a while for that feed through to average rents. Because you know, it, one, landlords might like to charge you higher rents, but they'll tend to do it at the break of a tenancy. Mm. Not always, I know, this, but they will tend to do it at the break of a tenancy, they, um, particularly for a big rise. Like if you're trying to like make a levels adjustment to rents, you'll tend to do it when you're... So it does actually take a bit of time. So we don't... If Adam did show you the renter's income chart, it doesn't... Sh like It comes down a little bit. It comes down. It does, it does yeah. come down, definitely, but it's not getting mullered like the mortgager effect because it just takes time for those things to just feed through a long time. And because... Um, the rate of increase does broadly look, oh, this is going like, to horrify all the renters in the room, so just don't get shouty, but does broadly look like it's mirroring the faster than expected wage rises over that period, right? On average, on average, before one gets upset, so lots of people, so if you're like not one of the people, as you say, who got the pay rises, rents track average wages, so everyone else got a pay rise, you didn't, your landlord wants to put up your rent, you're not being like happy days, there obviously, but, they're, but on average that is what it looks like is, um, going on but like but people have started talking about rents now haven't they i agree mortgages yes. has definitely got this portion amount of the yes. attention but it is in the although weirdly a lot of it is always about buy to let landlords it's, and their mortgages rather than about the actual renters but anyway about, it's usually about you know the regulation around the renting sector and that we have these these nasty buy to let people but even on the mortgages thing i think in the forecast so at the peak the proportion of people's household income that will go to their mortgage is 16 percent which is the highest since the financial crisis but historically is not a huge amount and i think that's again that's partly psychological because anyone who's bought a house was basically sitting on a winner right property prices go up uh, there are negligible borrowing borrowing yep. costs and we spent 15 years just thinking it was a very safe bet people who are renting realize i've got to do this for a couple of years and then i'm going to get on the housing ladder and it's that decision which is now being delayed and it is the first time buyer the people in trying to get onto the housing ladder for the first time that are acutely going to feel the fact that this is now um, been taken away from them as something that was we was promising them that it just takes a couple of years but ultimately banks will lend you money they will lend you four times onto your income you know you can get huge amounts of loans um, without with few questions asked and credit is easy available and cheap and that's the thing that's changed so it's I guess it's about if you are at that sort of inflection point in your life, the young journalist in yeah. London trying to get a house, it seems to be much further away from you than it ever was. Although it should, on the, on the long run, they're the winners. They are the winners, yeah. We should have higher ownership rates in... if, if, if those if, types of people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. If, you're, if you haven't bought yet and you're, like, hoping to get on, then in, you're, in general, a winner from a higher interest rate environment. I know it doesn't feel like that, and again, don't shout, but, like, in general, you're a winner from a higher interest rate environment versus the old people whose house value might come down. But, again, it probably doesn't feel like that. Um, right now, this, this loss of the future sentiment is something that yeah, again we we track absolutely. and we believe. I said two in five believe that their young people today are going to have a worse life than their parents, and that's data from 2022. I think if I pulled that today, it may have shifted somewhat, and I will pull it soon. Promise. Um, in which that, in which direction? Uh, I think it'll shift in a negative direction. Oh, so well, maybe just don't pull it then. Sort of, well, do you know we like to have a balance in positive and. Okay. Uh, mix of the news okay. we do pull all sorts of things okay. I, have, I can uh, tell you what animal people think the conservative party go okay that's that's way too <laughs> tempting that's nearly as bad as the cosy lizzie thing but come on what animal do they snake think snake or dog snake or dog you don't give them those to choose between no we don't okay because that would be a bit biased okay. and labor lion or dog 
Lion top, or dog? Top two answers. That's a lot nicer. The public, that sounds like the most positive thing I've heard about the Labour Party in, um, like, decades. Lion. We can take that and use it for a campaign. What is the lion? A lion is uh, sort of a... Rory? A no, the dog symbolises loyalty and... I know uh, what the lion is. What do you think? It's, cause, it's because... Like, how old is Keir Starmer? Do you all know? Do you want to know? He's just, he's just turned 60. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. His hair is phenomenal. <laughs> His hair is absolutely phenomenal for a 60-year-old. That's the line. There you go. That mane. It's the mane issue. That's what I it's about. The public is so on it. So much more it's about the hair. It's definitely about the hair. <laughs> Next time you look at a photo, just think, the guy's 60. Mm. And think of the 60-year-old men you know, and I tell you, their manes do not look like that. Mm. And I think it's natural. Strong I'm freaking jealous. Yeah. Like, if you could legislate for that, we'd all be legislating for the main... Right, anyway, we're way off topic. Right, OK, I want to go on to taxes. OK, we've done employment, we've done mortgages. Right, taxes. So the punters definitely... Know, and it's not only our taxes going up, right, when we're talking, like, several percent of GDP over the course of several years. Corporation tax is the, like, hidden one, but basically every threshold in the tax system frozen through a period of really high um, uh, inflation. And, and higher than expected, nominal, not real, nominal earnings growth means big tax rises. And Adam, actually, I haven't actually seen the chart you showed. I don't know whether we can bring it back up or this is going to break the Resolution Foundation IT. They're press backwards on the thing and see what happens. They're, you know, you never know. Let's do this live. But anyway, there's a great chart in the report. Yes, look at this. Right, keep going, keep going, keep going. Right, here, okay. This is showing you, so the blue line, uh, just to give us time to dwell on it, is showing you real pay. So it's got the bad news in it. That big dip is the cost of living crisis hitting, right? But then real pay is, is doing some growing. Okay? But the red line is after tax real pay. Okay? So none. That's just like the fall. And then you start getting some rises in what your employer is paying you. All employers will. If I do like stuff with like chief execs and not for Ipsos Mori, obviously. Uh, then once they've like got past the pleasantries, they start whinging about how big a pay rise is they're having to give their staff right now, right? That's what they all do. Or they can't get them back in the office, so it depends who they are, which firm. But those are the two things they whinge about, right? They, um, so they're whinging about the blue line, and the employees, though, are getting the red line mm. because their taxes are going up very significantly. They, um, now, and that is, to be fair, like, you know, that is what Conservative MPs think about. That's what they're worrying about. The tax take has gone up. The average tax rate is up. If you go back to when Rishi Sunak was first a backbench MP, I think it might even be his maiden speech, but if it's not, it's one of his first maiden speeches when he's a backbench MP. None of you have heard of him, the, um, unless you're very keen. Anyone claim to have heard of him in 2015, 16? That's when he got elected, wasn't it? Anyway, you haven't. You're lying. Right. So in the, uh, in the speech, he says, I want a 35% state, really explicitly. Like, in, he's like, has a number. He says the number. It's like a, quite a right-wing number. The... Um, uh, so he's probably not vastly perky about this either. Mm. Then, do, do the punters know this is how how like front of mind is the tax rises? Do we think so? It's not front of mind at the minute. They're more worried about general state of the economy, general yeah. state of cost of living, and because um, we we ask, we go to the public every month, in, and we do it in a way where spontaneous responses. We're not coding things up front. We're just saying, to them, what are you worried about? What's concerning you? And it doesn't come up as a top issue because for them, it's further down the. Um, this sort of behind the wiring a little bit. Okay. So it's not. So, that jo it would so John Redwood should calm down. I, I think when they when they bring it to life a little bit for the public and in the p campaigning, they're saying we will do X for taxation, which means this for you. That's yeah. when the public will be will be more avidly engaged with it. Okay. Let me flip this into a different question on the same topic, which is so 
inside government right now, there's just like never-ending discussions about which tax gets cut in March, right? What is the pre-election tax cut? Probably not in the autumn payment, probably in March. They, um, which one is it? And, and, and with hopes that that, if you get that right, it's like the game changer to the election frame. Mm. Is what you're saying, it's just not that, it's just not, it's not the big deal. I think if, no, I think if they can make it meaningful for people, and if yeah. they're thinking very carefully about which bits of the electorate they want to target with that tax, they could make it, it could meaningful matter. and talk about the outcome, the Feel real take-home outcome. That <laughs> will make it well, so people have moved on. That was a, again, when I said about the whack-a-mole with different costs. Yeah. Yeah. That was a whack-a-mole yeah. at one point, and they've moved on. Petrol's They're on something down. different now. So um, it could be, if they can think very carefully about how and yeah. what way to target it and how to communicate it to the public about why yeah. they've done it. If they cut something in March, income tax is what it's going to be, yeah? Yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, they're doing a lot of work on all the options. I guess, but I guess maybe the strategy works. Yeah. Like the stealth tax stuff is working because maybe people just don't feel it or they anything that impacts that on disposable income will be welcomed if they can speak clearly about what it's doing for people's disposable income and if they feel okay. it so that income you guys are remarkably um chilled about the public's current views on the tax rises that's quite interesting i thought they would be like sweating it more so if you do it at the point of like um so uh, on motoring taxes or something like that, yeah. they really do feel ULES. that, and that's much more tangible. ULES, yeah, that's much more tangible. And, and actually, on the net zero piece of the, uh, the public, uh, we can talk about that at some point if you want, but that's because it's a really a tangible, it, clear yes. change in a disposable income item that they were paying. Okay. And so they feel it. If you talk about you know general behind-the-wiring taxation, it's not coming out top of mind for people okay. at the minute. It doesn't mean that... Well, I think that care. is net good news for the government. That mm. Phrasing on it. The, um, I think the in the circumstances, the, the, the red the line is not good news. Like, no, it's not good. The red line is not good news. This is bad news for the punters and for the mm. uh, and for the government. But it probably so vindicates the idea that the freezing tax thresholds is a is a stealth way to do things. It means the economy is much richer in cash terms. The government's generating record amounts of tax revenue, and people okay, well, still don't feel they're getting completely screwed. So the the pe people currently feel that they're being screwed. They don't, they don't isolate that as a because I've yeah, pushed push into a higher tax bracket. Yeah, it's definitely evidence again that you can raise a lot of money yeah. through these stuff tax rises yeah. and, and no one will particularly really? notice or, or make a lot of noise about it. Yeah. Which is why chancellors do it. Yes, basically. but £12.50 sitting in your car every day is an immediate Yes, exactly. Less, yeah. It's less perky news. Um, uh, okay, Liam, let's... Because one thing I should say on tax, which I don't think it's... Actually, have you got your chart on the actual shorter term projections? Because I wanted to show... Like, or even just the annual parliament one. Actually, you haven't got that in here. Let's just do the short-term projections because I think, like, the tax rises are middle and top heavy. Yeah. Yes. So that, that, so that if you look at why in 22, 23, are you seeing those big income falls at the top? Like, why are those blue bars so negative? Is is it mainly tax or is it anything else that's doing that? It's partly. It's mostly earnings taking the big hit in the crisis and so the the payments being less important relatively for the top. But it is also that we had the. Uh, national insurance increase for part of that year. Obviously, yeah, the government tried to raise money in, in that way, but then had to backtrack. Yeah, okay. The, um, right, now, benefits. Let's go to the bottom end. So the um, poor households in general, on average, and there's a good question actually in here from somebody pointing out that obviously some kinds of households were excluded from all that cost of living support. So if you don't have recourse to public funds, for example, um, as like some large numbers of migrants will, will be in that situation, they won't have received that support. So that's, that's but on average, Poor households did receive quite a lot of support, both during the pandemic and then during the cost of living crisis. The cost of living payments is the most recent example. Um, uh, but as that unwinds, you get these big falls in the red bars. 
happening now. And someone's and the policy question that is coming, uh, probably coming quite soon, is what do you do about the benefit uprating in? I'm trying to find the question somebody has raised. The um, here we go. The um, which is sorry, I don't know if we can manage to get off this chart onto the um, question I've just put, but I'll read it out to you. All, which is that both parties are committed. Ooh, it's disappeared. Uh, both parties are committed to the triple lock. And there's a discussion about that. You might have heard the Prime Minister saying he's sticking to it. Although, remember, sticking to the triple lock leaves open the which measure of earnings is he using. So if you want to save money from pensioners, the way they'll do it this year is to say, I'm using, but, but I'm using uh, at normal pay, not total pay. I am taking bonuses out. That saves them about a percent of the increase for pensions. So that's still, that's still in play. The Treasury would obviously like to do that. They, um, but for working age benefits, there's been no discussion so far. There should be, because there is a big decision coming for the autumn statement. There's, are you going ahead with the 7%? normal 7% uprating in benefits next April that will be coming if you stick to the normal policy of uprating in line with inflation. Then, and there's definitely an argument inside bits of the Treasury not to do that and in politics because that will save money, create more room for tax cuts. All of our modelling, Adam, assumes they, don't, they do go ahead with the, um, with the benefit uprating. How big a deal is it if they don't? Um, yeah, obviously the outlook would look worse if they don't um, and changing the benefit operating is essentially a, a permanent real cut to benefits so yeah taking percentage points off people's real incomes for forevermore mm. yeah what do you think chance of it happening uh, I, think, I think that would be politically very unfeasible at that point yes. in the cycle I think um, if you, there's a, a couple of just things not just the money in the pocket, for people who are on low middle incomes, their reliance on public services is incredibly high as well. So you've got this issue about benefits. Yep. But we also have the issue about the infrastructure that helps you have a quality of life in Britain. And that infrastructure over the course of the next sort of nine to 12 months is gonna be more under in people's minds yep. a lot as well. So I think this specific benefits piece needs to be considered as well alongside what happens to our physical infrastructure and our social infrastructure to support people including around the childcare dynamic. I think for low and middle uh, income families in particular, there's, there's an awful lot that needs done. And both you see both sides starting to bring out some ideas on what they can do around childcare support. Yep, and the, and the Chancellor would say he, he, you know, he's chosen, although we were talking about wanting a smaller state, mm. the budget announced a big extension of the state mm. to basically providing childcare for people once yeah. their kids are nine months old. Like it's a big change and, and basically a policy that's Mothers should go back to work that, for that early. Absolutely, and that is making a difference to people's planning. You is know, it? Yeah, yeah, planning for work in a way that without that kind of support in place, they would not. That will so make, that will that make, make that Jeremy will make Hunt very happy. Yeah. That's the best thing he, he's yeah. heard from you all there day. You go. Benefit uprating, is it going to go ahead? I think it's the big question for this autumn statement. And actually, as you guys have shown, and to give them their credit, the Tories have done pretty well in trying to insulate the poorest parts of the population by giving them sort of these compensatory things like cost of living payments and they are going to be fading out. And it's, it depends on who you speak to in the Treasury and also which economists that you think about, you know, what's the, the headroom, right? So how much room does he have? Does he have more than he thought he's going to have because he is generating so much in, in, in revenues or actually is the debt interest payments and all the other things that are yeah. dragging him down? And I think at some point it's just to degree a choice about which one you choose to stress. And I think he will have to commit to the uprating. I, I, if, we, if he wants to also continue that, we're having a good 
look at look where inflation lives. That's the other thing. When you have the good economic news, which is probably going to coincide with that November, to then say, but actually, I can't really afford yeah. anything. Yeah. It just becomes, I think, the, the incoherence might actually mm. hit him a bit more. So mm. the, arg the argument would be, I did the 10% last year much faster than wages, and I'm going to do some increase this year, but I'll just do it so that it averages to the same. I'm going to make sure benefits rise in line with earnings over that period so that people on low incomes, people on middle and higher incomes basically do the same, but I'm not going to... That's what they would... If you, that's how you would just... That's the kind of sophistry around, you know... this is risky? To, I think for the opposition, I think this is clear element where they can... Yeah, they can Adam, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think one relevant stat, which is actually not, not in this report, is the food insecurity statistics oh, and yeah. things like that. But yeah, there's been a huge rise in, in people being unable to afford all of their meals and skipping meals uh, and obviously different parts of, of spending having similar pressures in terms of heating and so on. Yeah, but yeah those statistics are, are awful Terrible. and cutting benefits at that time yeah. uh, seems yeah, very politically risky as well as uh, is it, is it dubious. So it's definitely the wrong thing to do, right? Mm. It's definitely the wrong thing to do. Like the idea that poor Britain after large rises in cost of living that are focused on essentials we shouldn't, we shouldn't make sure benefits keep pace. So this is obviously bonkers in terms of everything we care about or should care about our country. But politically, is it a problem? Do people on higher and middle incomes, how much do they care? Do they raise food banks? Do they care about the hard end of deprivation? So um, we, are, we are a compassionate nation, actually. When you oh. look, we are a compassionate nation. When you look at even the topic of immigration, which is highly politicised, you know, British people do, do care, they do worry, um, etc. And so... Um, I don't have any stats on that okay. specifically, but I would assume based on some of the stats mm -hmm. that I've seen that we would be more of a compassionate right. nation. Okay. But we believe in fairness, and that comes through in a lot of our data yeah. as well, and fairness and controlled solutions. Those are yeah. some of the things that British people tend to be more in line with. So on things like um, helping support people at the lower end of the income spectrum, as long as it's fair, as long as it's controlled, those kind of principles which stand across a lot of British sentiment, I would imagine. Okay. Um, but on this, we have seen real shifts in people's behaviours on how they shop, how they utilise their uh, utilities, their electricity, you know, sitting in dark, um, you know, taking, uh, going and looking for uh, use by date of food, etc. So a lot of that stuff, when we do our shopping, uh, how people shop and how those habits have shifted and how they live in their households, you can see shifts at certain ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And that is real, as you say, about food insecurity. Okay. One thing I would just say on the autumn statement, I won't dwell on this because it's not our topic for today, Germany, is something weird is going on, which is the reason why everyone in government has chilled out a bit from where they were in June, so the public finance data is coming in better than was expected, right? And we know we've got big hits to the public finances from high debt interest payments, which is what was sparking panic and motivating a lot of these benefit cut discussions, right? Oh my God, the public finances are worse. I need to cut benefits to make sure I've got some headroom for tax cuts. It's the simplistic way of looking at it. What is going on, and it's slightly relaxing people, is the, the tax revenues are coming in so strongly because the inflation has fed into the tax revenues, but it hasn't fed into the public spending forecasts and won't for the autumn statement because the OBR just takes what the government tells it is its, is its spending plans and the government's telling it it's leaving public spending plans where they were for departments. So basically, the damage that inflation has done, sorry, the effect of inflation on tax revenues is coming into the forecast, but the effect, the eventual effect of inflation on public spending isn't coming into the forecast. And so the forecast won't look that bad 
come the autumn statement, giving them room to, and, and neither main party is going to want to solve that problem, I suspect, ahead of elections. So they're both going to pretend that inflation isn't going to push up public department or public spending until the election. And then afterwards say, oh, look, oh, look, have you met the public services recently is basically where we are heading for. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I bet that is where we end up, at which point the forecast might not look that bad in the autumn statement because you've had the inflation on the tax, but you haven't had the inflation on the I think it gives them run expense for 15 billion. So it's proper money. It's a proper money. Right, let's do a poll quickly. There, again, it's on Slido and it's hashtag uh, living standards. So the, um, which of these matters politically of the things we've been discussing? So mortgage cost, but let's do mortgage cost is tax, is housing costs, right? So rents is in there too. So is it housing that's the problem? Is it just he doesn't hit his inflation? He promised to halve inflation. Uh, he gets, he, he falls a bit short and it's still hovering at like four and a half percent before around the election. Is it the rising taxes? Kelly's saying no. Uh, is it the benefits falling or is it not these it's actually the public services is it you know will these have all gone away is the real issues and it's and actually it will be more like 97 it will be a public services rather than a living standards election and the fact that some roofs fall in actually dominates the news mm. so while everyone else votes you have to do it online guys those of you in the room but everyone else online is already voting what about each of you in the room so kelly what is it what's going to be the biggest challenge so today it's yeah. inflation okay. tomorrow biggest headache is going to be a combination of, uh, I think, combination of inequality and public services. Okay. So uh, they're going to have real challenges on the haves and the have-nots at generational, regional levels, etc. Labour, that's a real front issue for them that they are that perceived to be good at. Sorry, it's not okay. on your list. And, Disgraceful. Uh, I know. Um, and actually being a party of delivery, if they could, that they'll be saying they're the party of can-do stuff around yep. inflation. If, if they make that happen, that'll be a positive. Okay, let's come public back to your haves and have-nots in a second for our next bit of our discussion, because that's really good. Miriam, what are you going for? Public services. Um, this, is, um, this is interesting. You think the crumbling is a problem? Yeah, I mean, I'm as an economics journalist, I'm pretty modest about how much of the stuff that I write about the economy really penetrates or cuts through to the general public. I would say it'd be in a very small percentage points. Mm -hmm. uh, but given the nature of the media landscape. I think the schools issue has already like become so totemic. Are we sure this isn't because we're all living through this week and, and, no. and like, and like thick of it back, episodes keep yeah. happening on TV? I don't know. I, well, I think, we, I think when people look back and the fact that even in November when he gives the autumn statement, I don't think he's going to be able to escape the shadow of, of this September. Um, yeah. Because it's just very real, and also if you know, even if your mortgage is not going up that much, and you've actually saved loads of money, and you have you're sitting on a huge bank of savings, but you can't get a GP's appointment, I think that's the thing that people yeah. think. Push you over the edge. Yeah. It's worth saying on the there is, there is an autumn statement link from this crumbling schools row, which is the reason that the reason the way they made the public finances add up last November was to take uh, a, basically take a percentage point off public sector net investment spending plans in the medium term. So we're spending quite a lot right now. But the trajectory, so the level is high-ish historically, 3%, just below 3% of GDP. But the fall that's now penciled in is quite large. So it's like we have, we have done what we always do, which is when we get a bad set of fiscal forecast, deal with it by penciling in some public investment cuts. Uh, and unsurprisingly, your school roofs don't get fixed uh, 20 years later yeah. as a um, result. So it may come back as an issue for the Chancellor as opposed to Gillian Keegan giving comedy gold uh, interviews. Uh, Adam, where are you? And then we're going to do the results. Let's have it. Inflation matters a lot for, for living standards in the short term, uh, whether it's 2% or 3% or 4%, but probably for the public, all they're going to see is that it's a, a lot lower than it has been um, and that the smaller differences are, are not going to make as much of an impact. 
Um, so you think so that he gets some, he gets quite, so get, they get some credit so it, for it? Yeah, it doesn't matter exactly what happens. It's going to come down a lot and they'll get some credit for that. Um, but there could be a political headache maybe on uh, whether there's a recession. Uh, we've not talked about that. And this, this report is not focused on GDP, but obviously if there is a recession, that comes to, to mm -hmm. dominate the, the discussion yeah. and, and does feed through. Okay, let's do the, what the, the punters thought. This is your like practice at voting before you get to do it in an actual... Well, they, I think they're, basi well, they're basically agreeing with you guys, which is like there's going to be some public services in it. Although that is actually hard for Labour in some ways because they get the, it's easier for them to be like, oh, look how bad it is, but then they've got to answer. They have to, this what are you going to do? This is, this is the crux of it because they have to come up with solutions that are affordable yep. in a term. And if so, looking at NHS at the minute, when we've got the list of issues for the public, it's number four at the minute. So they're really worried about the inflation, about the economy, and NHS is number four. But even at number four, it's the lowest level we've seen it in terms of public concerns since, uh, oh, God the lowest level for a couple of decades like it's still okay. it's not very high and that will just and the waiting lists are bad people can't get gp appointment we see this sort of stuff coming so through another data so it's just it's all relative and as soon as the inflation piece subsides okay. yes you'll have other things that come and go as people get worried about you know okay right i want to do, let's do let's do some good news so savers so like one one thing that you should take away from this report that isn't getting enough discussion um, in the in the press, obviously from you, obviously it's getting the optimal amounts, but from everyone else is not getting enough. Is this surge in savings income? Okay, because people are basically people tend to write bad news, right? So they write the mortgage thing. The savings income rise is huge that is going on. So like five billion 2021, 90 billion next year, right? Huge. Guys, look at this very proactive chart raising here, right? Okay, so it's going from basically zero, loads of angry pensioners for the last decade. To, look, to quite a lot, and it's, and it's happening fast. They forget, like, there's also like changing where people are putting their money, obviously, because you can now get some interest rates. So you move the money to, and those of you will have noticed, like, the government's savings schemes, yeah. national savings and investment offering over 6%, that is a big deal. That's, a, that's not just a, it's not, that isn't just reflecting the rise in rates, that's a change in policy by the national savings and investments to basically be part of a ramrod to force the rest of the market to push up their rates. So this so there's two reasons this matters. One is some people are going to be pretty perky. Mm. If you have got a lot of savings, and remember we hardly tax savings income, mm. right? It's ridiculous. We don't tax it at all unless you unless you're like got bad tax advice. We basically don't tax it. I think yeah. there probably is a row coming about with tax treatment of savings. So there's a, well, a one thousand pound allowance, and a lot of people are going to be uh, shooting past. Oh, you that mean we might move from. So we might move to the situation where some people actually do pay some tax on the savings income. Yeah, and I think there'll be a lot of, uh, of shouting from some quarters well, for, for changing that. Okay, well, that's a good, that's a good flag to come. Um, you should pay a tax, people. The, um, uh, you've, got, you've got some good news. The, um, do we, like, and, and this is presumably driving quite a lot of the why outright owners are also seeing actual rises in their incomes, because the people who are outright owners of their homes are also the people with the savings. So are we sure we're not like... They're also more likely to be conservative voters. And they're conservative voters and they vote. They turn out to vote. Yeah. So are we sure this isn't actually like a good news story for the government? And I'll come on to why it might be a bad news story for the Bank of England. Yeah. But actually, okay, overall people are going to... The middle-income working-age people are really pissed off, but they ain't voting Tory anyway. But the ones they need to get out to vote, it's going to be happy days next year. Well, but they would not do it anyway. So the counterfactual would have been this group would have voted conservative anyway. So there's not really a game. But they have got a turnout. They've got to like... Yeah, and there is a challenge at the minute, perhaps people disenchanted with politics more generally who Definitely. won't turn out, but we don't know yet. It's still too far out from an electoral yeah. event to be able to really talk about that confidently. But 
from this, if you looked at this group in isolation, the counterfactual is they would have voted Conservative anyway. So there's okay. no net gain as a result of the benefits they're seeing. Okay, let's do it. So that's the politics side of it. On the economic side, one thing that's interesting is that 90 billion figure mm -hmm. is a large number. Yes. In, on some ways of measuring this, I'm not going to go into it because it's too complicated, it's bigger than the hit to incomes yes. from the mortgage yes. rises. Whereas the point of monetary policy is obviously to hit our incomes and stop us spending and slow the economy. So from the monetary policy side, how do you think they're actually like, uh, this is suboptimal? I think they think, and I think this is right, the marginal propensity to consume among savers is lower than the debtors. Explain, so explain that. So that means people who, people who are already got, a, who've got savings and who like to save, even if their savings income is going up, that's not an excuse for them to go out and spend more money. It's just like, oh, my pot money's growing and I'm going to keep sitting on it. Um, savings generally as... The, the phenomena of savings and how they work in the UK is quite interesting because it's driving very different outlooks for the economy, mainly between the Bank of England, which has been very pessimistic mm. about the UK, and the OBR, which is massively optimistic to some degree. Because the OBR, up until a few months ago, thought that people who had accumulated all the savings uh, during the pandemic would go to spend all of them to maintain their living standards and therefore kind of smooth out some of the bumps in the economy by keeping demand quite high. And they're going to keep, they're going to prevent that recession from happening. And the bank thought that actually no people are going to keep their savings pretty stable. The, the data has moved slightly in the OBR's direction. A little bit in the months. OBR's direction. So the stable level is about 7%. It's kind of gone a little bit down. We're seeing some increase in credit from the types of people we already knew so would go to borrow to, yeah. to help smooth out their spending. So I don't think the bank is kind of panicking about this right now. I think they're happy about this because this would suggest that the way that they want interest rates to work in the economy is sort of working and it kind of just helps with the public perception. So it's interesting in the UK, zero interest rates were seen at the beginning as like this is terrible, ultra loose monetary policy. Whereas in a country like Germany, they were seen as like the end of, days. like the, literally the end of, days end of days. Because they always associate high interest rates with helping savers out. And that's been, that's kind of normal psychological way of the way Germans think about monetary policy. Yeah. Whereas here we've always thought zero or low is good because we're a country apparently of debtors and we're not fixated on the idea that we need to help save us yeah. monetary policy. So I think it's it's an interesting shift. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't get that attention is because we've been so used to the ultra low interest rates that we forget that it having did high interest to. rates. It did. Yeah, in I imagine thousands, in, in like those of us that are older yeah. and haven't met the Cosy Lizzie people, yeah. they, um, it I was mean, a bigger deal in the um, 2000s. Remember George Osborne invented basically a massive bun as recently as 2016, 15? The like guaranteed higher interest rate for like up to X for like some pensioners. Do you remember this savings account? He created, someone's nodding, not to be making it up. So there is always been there, I agree, because it's been so long, everyone's kind of forgotten, forgotten yeah. uh, because they're too busy kind of TikToking or whatever they're doing. The, um, the other thing I was going to say on the savings front is here we're focusing on the impact of savings and this higher interest rate, higher inflation environment on the savings income. Don't obviously forget that the savings levels are getting mullered by the higher inflation, right? So the people who are winning on the income side from this are also seeing their actual levels of savings in real terms yeah. be cut. So there's layout that I don't know, like the, the oldies are getting mullered in some by the higher inflation just in a different way to other people. Right, to wrap us up, I want, I want to finish on something perky-ish. So how could it all get better? So here's the poll. The um so which could which is the most likely to give us some kind of uh perkiness? So inflation can come down even faster, and as Adam says. Uh, which is like, well, that's the US situation, right? Do you remember in the US six months ago, everyone was writing these papers saying, okay, it's going to come down quite a bit inflation, to, uh, but then the, like, the first half of the inflation will go away, but it's going to be getting rid of the second half. It's going to be really difficult. We're going to have to get higher unemployment to cause it. Turned out to be complete nonsense, right? It's just disappeared so far, so far in the US. The, um, uh, so is it 
will the US experience will happen here. Bank of England thinks no currently, but we'll see. Um, is it that interest rates, um, the bank will either, inflation will have come down so they can cut rates or they'll politically panic for the reasons you outlined at the beginning and so we'll get some rate cuts by the election. Is it that pay growth carries on surprisingly on the upside, productivity is higher, wages can be a bit higher? Uh, saying that's basically the same thing as stronger GDP growth, more or less, but but with a different politics to it, to some degree. The, um, is it that the public finances are actually happy days? Or is it impossible that any of this happens? And those of you who are old enough to not know what Cosy Lizzie is do know what Dad's Army is, and we're actually just all doomed. So what is it? Come on, Kelly. What's so, the best upside risk for the government? So obviously you've got a list of things here that are all pure economic. So I'll yes. pick one and then I'll say and. Okay, go on. So I think the mortgage group and that interest rate cut would be an interesting dynamic from an economic trend perspective yeah. but they also need to be able to be calling themselves the party of delivery and get stuff done so they need wins across a range of policy areas not just okay. one and the other thing that could go in their favour at the minute Labour have not really fucked up is that allowed on this? Well I mean nowadays everyone, everyone's at messed it up. nowadays so I don't see why you should Messed up. They haven't messed up. Oh, God Jesus don't TikTok. Um, they, they haven't messed up substantively and they're holding a very stable front. You're talking about in the recent past? Uh, yes I mean like. Historically in the, they haven't. Yes of course but in the in the last sort of 12 months or so there have not yep. been substantive detrimental crisis to their brand. Okay. And that could happen as well. Okay. So they could get lucky on politics, basically. They, yeah, they could get lucky on politics. You know, Labour have there've been some momentums which have been lucky from a political perspective that have driven the Conservative okay. brand down. Adam, what do you want to go for? And then we're going to have the last word. I think one interesting thing in the economic forecasts is how quickly nominal pay growth is expected to come down. It's what about eight percent at the moment, and the bank and others expect it to to rapidly fall back. Because the Bank of England are basically suicidal about the long term. <laughs> trend for the UK economy. If you were the government, you would be shouting at the bank saying, you, you just like hate Britain. Yeah, you'd be using OBR's forecast to say. Yes, you would also, exactly. Anyway, so keep going. So, that could not happen. Yeah, I think it's quite quite possible, speculatively, that, that pay growth could uh, so be, be stronger for longer. But as you yeah. said, that sort of has to rely on productivity growth to be sustainable. Otherwise, there's a, there's a different problem. Yeah, that's good. And one thing is interesting, given how different the narratives are about the UK economy and the US economy right now. Plug for an event we'll be doing on this in October. But the um, is that everyone's saying US economy gangbusters, UK economy like absolute basket case, like nobody can like walk out the door. What's happened to real wages in the UK and real wages? Right, we've had high inflation, obviously, but real wages in the UK and the US since pre-pandemic, right? They're exactly the same. They are identical, which is one reason why the uprating of the like those of you that pay attention, the the increase in the level of GDP. Um, estimated by the ONS that came out last week, in some ways is just telling us the blind thing the obvious, which is if you looked at the actual data based on things we know, tax revenues quite strong, weight, real wages actually pretty similar to the US in the UK. In the UK, those things should have told you probably the GDP data was looking a bit dodgy. Mm. The, um, right, so that's Adams, and then last bit of perk, give us some optimism. I'm actually weirdly going to say that I think none of the economic stuff is going to matter that much. Because some of us have got like a Sorry, life. Doing I know. This, so, so do I. <laughs> so um, I'll tell, why are you? Why are you? <laughs> I think uh, this stuff will probably help at the margins. But I'm actually I feel that the if the Tories want to win an election, they'll move towards a culture wars kind of narrative. Oh, it's really high risk. Uh, it is very high risk. But maybe you do look at the US, and if you want to take lessons, maybe it does work. 
We don't have that. I don't many think you're ending Christians. on positive. It's true. I don't think we do have that many Christians. But I think more the migration. I think the, mi the the culture wars that the Brits like to have, rather than okay. uh, the immediate transportation of like trans or whatever. So yeah, not abortion. Um, more around maybe migration and some of these sort of on the fringe issues. Um, maybe England could with the Euros or something next year. That would make us feel good. I I think it's probably going to be much more something. What else you're doing external. is like merging the Resolution Foundation. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. the economy is going to be the area that's going to okay. deliver. Well, my, uh, that, that, uh, that is definitely possible, and it's definitely possible, and some countries have definitely shown you, you can have periods of strong culture wars. My strong view is that the history of elections and the reality of how bad the situation is right now means that it basically can't be anything other than uh, very important, which is why you should keep coming to every Resolution Foundation from now <laughs> until the general election, people. Yeah, and we're very market-focused, so we want to keep you happy as consumers. Okay, very good. Right, can we all thank the panel for their thoughts today? The good news is you've got a long time to decide who you're going to vote for, so off you go and do it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.